Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. The other day we talked about Louisa May Alcott and thanks to Little Women and the other novels that she wrote, she's probably the most famous person of her immediate family today. But she was definitely not the only notable figure among all the Alcotts. In particular, her father, Bronson Alcott, made a name for himself as a philosopher and a teacher and like an educational reformer. And her youngest sister, May Alcott, was an artist who was really starting to grow in prominence and do some really notable work when she died at a sadly early age. Um, We don't really quite know enough about May's life because it was so short to be able to do a whole episode just on her. So we're going to talk about her in the second half of this episode. And for the first half, we're going to sort of hit the highlights of Bronson Alcott's life uh, because he... You could do multiple episodes on him. He, he had kind of a wandering, sometimes strange existence, but we're going to like do the most fun parts uh, of his stuff. These The two of them are really overshadowed by Louisa May Alcott, but they both have their own fascinating stories. And when we took our holiday trip to Orchard House, which I talked about uh, in the previous episode, when we left, Patrick was like, I really just want to learn more about May. <laughs> <laughs> So today we will. Wish granted, Patrick. Uh, so Bronson was born Amos Bronson Alcott in Connecticut on November 29th of 1799. He was the son of flax farmers, and he had no formal education at all beyond the age of 13. And before that, even his schooling had happened, but it had been kind of spotty because work always took higher priority. But just the same, he became an educational reformer and a philosopher, despite this sort of gap in his education process. He was an extremely idealistic person with very strong opinions from a very early age. And when he was 17, he left home, traveled south, and became a peddler. His intent had actually been to become a teacher. And at that point, anyone who could read and write could basically become a teacher. It didn't matter that he had no real formal education. But uh, he thought it would be a good idea to hone his teaching skills in the south where he supposed people were going to be more ignorant and therefore easier to learn and practice on than he might find in the North. Oh, Bronson. Uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, this attitude did not really go over terribly well. And not only could he not find a teaching job, but the people that he met considered him to be a patronizing Yankee interloper. So nobody wanted to provide him with lodging uh, either. So he turned to peddling. And he kept a hit this trade for five years. And he started to think of it in terms of Pilgrim's Progress, which had always been extremely influential to him. He also bolstered this reversal of fortune with the belief that any profession could be noble if you approached it with the right attitude. And not only did he not find that people in the South were more ignorant than people <laughs> in the North, uh he also, because he was visiting these large southern plantations, remember this was before the Civil War, he was finding that these people's homes were like really elegant and refined in a way that just did not exist in his Connecticut hometown. Uh, it was also his first like in-person exposure to slavery, which later he would become a very staunch abolitionist. So it had sort of that darker side, but uh 
Yeah, he was sort of like, I was wrong about the South in so many ways. <laughs> he did eventually go back to Connecticut and finally became a teacher. In 1830, he married Abigail May. And he was an educator and she was a reformer. And their ideas generally complemented one another quite well. Where Bronson wanted to reform the way children learned, Abigail wanted to change the way people were treated. So they were both very vocal and strident supporters of women's suffrage, of the abolition of slavery, and other social causes. Along with a son who died not long after he was born, they had four daughters, Anna, Louisa, Elizabeth, and May. And Bronson was really deeply involved in their upbringing. He was a stern and authoritative figure at home, even to the point of seeming just rigidly inflexible. But at the same time, he encouraged his daughters to be creative and self-reliant and independent. And in a way, he also saw his children as projects. He believed that children were perfect beings, having recently arrived on Earth from a celestial realm. Uh, but by the time children were old enough to go to school, they were already moving away from that most perfect state. So he made detailed written observations of his daughters while they were babies, and as they grew, tested them as people in an almost experimental way of trying to get them to continually perfect themselves. And he also taught them, either at home or in the schools where he taught, uh, using his own educational methods. He would he would do things like he would leave apples out around, which the girls weren't supposed to eat, to see whether they would eat them. And then if uh, if if asked about it, whether they would tell the truth, um, there's a whole story where it was uh, it was Louisa's birthday and he invited another child at the last minute. So there wasn't enough cake. And it, there's some speculation about where this whether this was a test to see whether Louisa would be generous and give her guests the last piece of cake or take it for herself because it was her birthday. So, yeah, it was it's like a little social experiment happening in the home. I think that were I Bronson's child, I would be a grave disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we talked a little about Bronson's educational philosophies in our episode about his second daughter. And here's how Louisa herself described it. My father taught in the wise way, which unfolds what lies in the child's nature as a flower blooms, rather than crammed it like a Strasbourg goose with more than it could digest. And he asked his children questions rather than just giving lectures. And he led them in exercise, took them on field trips, and added music, art, and nature study to their coursework. Students also voted on decisions, and they elected class officers. A lot of this would be taken for granted today. It sounds just like school, right? Like, that. this is sort of how education happens in America for most kids. Uh, but at the time, it was all completely revolutionary. And in many of the schools where he was trying to teach, parents strongly strongly objected to him approaching classes this way. He lost teaching jobs over and over, or the schools where he was trying to teach would shut down. And so the Alcott family wound up moving again and again and again, both in search of work and to escape the failure at work that had just happened. In 1834, Bronson opened a school in the Masonic Temple in Boston, which became known as the Temple School. His entire purpose with the school was to put his theories of education into practice. And he also transformed the school into a place of beauty. It was full of artwork, it had comfortable furnishings, and it was loaded with books. Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Peabody both had teaching posts there. And these women were both early in their careers, and they would, of course, become quite well known as a journalist and an educator. 
But unfortunately, the temple school did not last for very long. People didn't like how physically affectionate Bronson was with the children. Boston, as a city, was also extremely religiously conservative, and people did not like that Bronson's discussions included really progressive discussions of religion with the children and also pretty frank discussions of sex. He published a book called Conversations with Children, in which he related these conversations that he'd had with kids about the four Gospels, and some of these uh, conversations ran pretty contrary to religious doctrine. People even thought that they were sacrilege. So outraged, horrified parents started to withdraw their children from his school. Elizabeth Peabody actually left the school after a series of disagreements with Bronson, among them that he had read her private letters, the same as he and Abigail did with all their children. And after she left, he lost more students, and the last of them, besides his own children, left when he integrated the school in 1839. Just let that year sink in on that integration situation. Uh, even though slavery had already been abolished in most of the North and Boston was home to a huge abolitionist movement, that did not mean white people were comfortable or wanted their children in an integrated school. So when the Temple School failed, not only had his this labor of love project that he was deeply attached to failed, he was really hugely in debt. That was a very expensive endeavor, especially given all the expensive furniture, furnishings and art and all of that that had gone into it. So uh, we're going to talk about what happened after the school closed, after a brief word from a sponsor. Stupendous. To return to Bronson Alcott. A lot of Bronson's theories about education had roots in transcendentalist philosophy. And the transcendentalist movement flourished in New England in the mid to late 1800s. It had literary, religious, and philosophical elements, and they were all tied together by the idea that people have an intuitive ability to seek out spiritual truths for themselves. And I had a hard time working out like a very straightforward, basic definition of transcendentalism because at the heart of the movement was a, a rejection of dogma. So it's like, kind of hard to describe it as any one thing. A lot of the most well-known American writers and thinkers of the 19th century were transcendentalists, and the Alcotts were friends and colleagues with many of them, including Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and Henry David Thoreau. And after the failure of the Temple School, the Alcotts spent some time back in Concord, where Bronson tried to support the family through farming. They had food, but little else, because the farm was enough to subsist, but not enough to purchase things like fuel to heat their cottage. When Ralph Waldo Emerson came by to visit, he'd often accidentally, air quotes, leave money squirreled somewhere around the house, like under a cushion or a candlestick, to try to help out. After a while, Bronson took a trip to Europe, which was also funded by Emerson, to visit some friends, some of whom had actually named a school after him. And when he came home, English reformer Charles Lane returned to Massachusetts with him. Uh, one of the pursuits that the two of them embarked upon together was the attempt to create a transcendentalist community called Fruitlands in Harvard, Massachusetts. So if you've listened to our episode on the Brook Farm community, which uh, Bronson actually wanted to join, but he couldn't afford to, you already have a sense of some of the pitfalls of trying to start a utopian commune. Uh, although Bronson did know how to farm, there were a lot of other obstacles to what they were planning. For one thing, it was going to be a strictly vegan commune. Nothing they wore or used could have been produced through any association with slavery as well. So they could not wear cotton clothes. And they also couldn't wear wool clothes because that subjugated sheep. 
Animals also could not be used for labor, so they could not use any kind of plow animals or beasts of burden. And they had timed this whole endeavor kind of badly. They all moved out to Fruitlands in June of 1843, late in the season for planting most crops. Plus, Bronson and Charles went out to try to recruit more people in the autumn, which meant there weren't enough hands to bring in what could be harvested. Charles Lane also caused a pretty big rift within the Alcott family. The Alcotts valued family and their family unit above their own individual selves. And Charles, on the other hand, felt that while family, in air quotes, as in like your community, your chosen group of people that you are living with, was critical, uh, that family ties through blood and marriage were actually destructive. So Charles Lane thought that Abigail and the children were weighing Bronson down. So after he started advocating for the residents of Fruitlands to separate men and women in the style of the Shakers, Abigail, feeling that this was the last straw, threatened to take the children and all of her furniture and leave. There is uh, also some debate, and you may have already had this question mark pop up over your head listening to this, about whether Bronson and Charles actually had a physical relationship, adding another element to this triad. Abigail definitely did not like Charles at all and didn't like the way his philosophies were meant to drive a wedge through the family. And this was not the only time that his presence drove her out of their home. So regardless of exactly what was going on in in that situation, Fruitlands did not succeed in attracting new members. And everyone who had originally joined left by January of 1844. So this whole endeavor only lasted a few months. Bronson and Charles each blamed the other for the failure. And the Alcotts moved to Still River, Massachusetts for several months. And this was basically a recovery period for the whole family. Finally, the Alcotts made their way back to Concord and settled in the now-famous Orchard House. Bronson served as the superintendent of schools in Concord from 1859 through 1864. And as Louisa's writing became more well-known, he became a sought-after speaker on religion, philosophy, and education. Yeah, he had a whole speaking tour, especially uh, in the West, which, like, the blanket region of the United States, which is... A lot of it wasn't states yet, but uh, he became increasingly successful as a speaker as uh, as Louisa May Alcott's books became more and more widely sold. He also opened a school of philosophy in Concord in 1879 at the age of 80. It had been a lifelong dream of his to open a school like this. And a year later, it moved into a building that still sits adjacent to Orchard House. This was a school that taught summer classes for adults for nine years. In the fall of 1882, Bronson had a stroke, and from that point, he was unable to write or to work, and he needed to be cared for. He died on March 4th of 1888. The School of Philosophy closed the following July. So that is sort of the the highlights of Bronson Alcott's life. We will move on to talking about his daughter, May, uh, after another brief word from a sponsor. All right, so if you want to build a really beautiful, clean website that focuses on your content, what you need to know about is Squarespace. These let you put together a website with uh, drag-and-drop and intuitive interfaces. You don't have to learn how to code. You will have access to email support and live chat 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
uh, you can put together an absolutely beautiful site without having to know anything really technical. You can create your own logos with their easy logo creator. You can put together a commerce site if you want. Your design is going to be responsive and look good on pretty much every device. So if you or people that come to your site are looking at it with a smartphone or a tablet or on their laptop or anything else, it's going to look really good. It's going to be optimized for every possibility. So you can try Squarespace dot com risk free. Just go to squarespace.com slash history and you're going to get a free 14 day trial. You will not need a credit card for that, which is a great little advantage. And if you like their product, you can sign up for costs as low as $8 a month. And that will include a free domain name if you sign up for a full year. So just use the offer code history and you will get 10% off your first purchase. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash history. Now we will turn our focus to Abigail May Alcott. She was the youngest of Bronson Alcott's daughters, born on July 26th of 1840. And she went by a number of other nicknames before settling on going by her middle name of May. And perhaps because she was the baby of the family, the rest of the Alcotts absolutely doted on her. The whole family had a huge focus on not being materialistic, but they would forego their own necessities to buy little presents for May, like pretty ribbons for her hair. As she became more interested in art, she was allowed to draw and paint anywhere she wanted and as often as she wanted. And once the family moved into Orchard House, one of those places was on the walls of her room. So her wall drawings are still there in the house and are uh, preserved on the walls of the house. And in addition to the walls of her bedroom, she had an actual studio in the front of the house, and her work is still on the walls there today as well. A lot of the things that she drew on walls were sort of like doodles and practice and that kind of stuff. But she would also sometimes create a an intentional work of art on a wall. There is an owl painted on the mantle in Louise's room, which May painted there while her sister was ill because she wanted to make her sister feel better. And until Louisa's writing career took off, the Alcott family was extremely poor. However, thanks to the generosity of friends and other family, May was able to study art in Boston. She spent three winters studying at the Boston School of Design. And she also studied with William Morris Hunt and Dr. William Rimmer, who were two of the most respected art teachers in Boston at the time. A number of Hunt's paintings are in the collection at the Smithsonian, and Dr. Rimmer was especially known for his sculpture. Daniel Chester French, who became one of the most prominent sculptors in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century, also studied with Hunt and Rimmer, and he became one of May's art students. Uh, Like the Alcotts, his own family was very poor, and he was trying to hone his craft as a sculptor by working on things like scraps of wood and root vegetables. During the winter of 1868 to 1869, May shared her sculpting tools and materials with him, and he undertook his formal study of sculpture. He later credited May as his first teacher. French became famous for sculpting monuments. The Minuteman statue in Minuteman National Historic Park, the bronze doors at the Boston Public Library, and the seated statue of Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial. What May really wanted to do, though, was to go to Europe to study art. But, of course, that was well, well beyond the family's means for a long time. So, instead, she worked as an art teacher in the United States. This included at an institution for disabled children in New York and at uh, other schools in Concord. In addition to her original work, she also became a very skilled copyist of other people's work. 
Finally, after the publication of Little Women in 1869, May got to follow her dream of studying in Europe, thanks to her older sister Louisa. She made three trips to Europe, where she studied in England and France. And the third trip, which she made in 1876, was for good. In 1877, she submitted a still life of fruit, a bottle, and a jug to the Paris Salon. The Salon was the official exhibition of the Académie de Beaux-Arts in Paris, and it was the most prestigious art exhibition in the Western world in the latter half of the 18th and nearly all of the 19th centuries. That year, hers was one of 40 American works and 2,000 total works to be chosen out of 8,500 entries. Placements at the Paris Salon were hung by their perceived worth, and May's still life was close to eye level. Yeah, basically the entire walls of the whole salon space were floor to ceiling, every inch covered up with artwork. Uh, and so where your artwork was had to do with how good they thought it was. And close to eye level was pretty awesome. Later that year, her work started to go on display at other galleries and exhibitions in England and France. And she also became friends with painter Mary Cassatt, who you might know her from the painting Breakfast in Bed or the Boating Party She did lots of paintings of mothers and their children. In the spring of 1878, May met and fell in love with a Swiss businessman named Ernest Nieriker. In addition to his tobacco business, he was also a violinist. She was 38 at the time, and he was 22 when they married. Another of her paintings, called Negress, was selected for the Paris Salon in 1879. This one was a portrait, and we don't know exactly who the subject was. It's a black woman wearing a one-shouldered white top and an orange hair scarf. The same year, she published a book called Studying Art Abroad and How to Do It Cheaply, which I find to be extremely charming. And once I discovered it, I kind of just wanted to throw this whole episode out the window and instead have a dramatic reading of (laughs) Studying Art Abroad and How to Do It Cheaply. And the good news is that you can read that book for free on the Internet. Uh, As Tracy said, she loves it. It is aimed at lady artists who want to spend a year abroad studying. And it starts, quote, Art is so over-talked and overwritten at the present time, charmingly to be sure, but still overdone, that even were a student's opinion on the subject of any value, I have no intention of adding my name to the list of those who, from critics like Ruskin and Hammerton, down to the multitude of newspaper correspondents, keep America en courant with European painters, pictures, and gossip. Among her practical advice... Pack plenty of old undergarments because London grime and French laundry acids are going to just destroy anything that's, quote, delicate or nicely trimmed. Also, your old underwear is going to be useful for paint rags once it becomes too thin to wear. That's just good, sensible thinking. Uh, recycling. Uh, it talks about which cities are the best for which media the lady hopes to study. London being best for watercolor, Paris for oils, Rome for sculpture. It also discusses how to get around, what to expect in all of these different countries, how to dress yourself nicely but cheaply when it's partway through your tour and you realize your wardrobe is in need of attention. And she lists out the names and directions of teachers, boarding and lodging houses, shops and the like. And among other things, she advises ladies to shop at civil service stores or army and navy shops, which require a card from a subscriber to shop there. Sadly, 
not long after the 1879 Salon or the publication of this book, May died just a few weeks after giving birth to her daughter, Louisa May. It's not totally clear whether her death was related to having given birth or not. May had previously said that she wanted her sister Louisa to look after her child if something should happen to her, and that was in part because her husband's business involved a lot of travel. So little Louisa May, who was also known as Lulu, arrived in Concord, Massachusetts, escorted by her father and her aunt when she was 10 months old. And she went on to live with Louisa May Alcott until uh, Louisa was no longer physically able to care for her because of her own health. After her death, she went back to Europe with her father. Uh, really, the based on the sort of the strides that, uh, that May's work was taking uh, before her death, she probably would be somebody that we would associate with, like, painters of that era had she had a longer life and been able to do more work. Do you have a spot of listener mail for us now? I do. Our listener mail is zipping back to our episode about uh, special education in the United States. And it is from Sarah, who says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I love your show. It's one of the podcasts I must listen to as soon as it comes out. I'm a special education teacher. I just sat down to suggest the history of special education and looked at my phone to see it downloading. I had also suggested how an IEP works to Josh and Chuck. And she now talks about a thing that we brought up in the episode and and mentioned that it was not really a standard that's so much used anymore. So she continues. Instead of mental age, we now have developmental ages, and it can be different for every domain, social, cognitive, motor, etc., There are in-depth diagnostic assessments for each of these, and a significant developmental delay generally means they're eligible for special education services. There's a lot more that goes into it, including collecting data on the work they do, but the diagnostic assessment is a big part of it. The more I learn about the history of special education, the more I realize it really is a civil rights issue. Children with special needs have been slowly gaining more access to education, but the movement is by no means over. Many people still think the least restrictive environment is optional. I've been asked why one of my students was in a classroom by an administrator and told to collect data to prove the student should be in self-contained by a fellow teacher. I'm a big advocate for students being included as much as possible. The fact is, being with other children is one of the best ways for many children to learn appropriate behaviors. Although least restrictive environment is the law, for students with moderate to severe disabilities, a self-contained room is often the default, even if they could be included at least some of the day. It's easier for the teachers and cheaper for the school system, but not necessarily better for the student. I also believe that inclusion benefits the other students in the class. Students should be aware that people learn in different ways and have diverse abilities and strengths. Getting to know students with disabilities on a personal level creates more tolerant, understanding adults. All students, with and without IEPs, learn differently. As differentiation becomes the norm in classrooms, there's no reason most students with disabilities cannot be accommodated by the general education classroom with support. Sorry for the super long email. It's something my coworkers and I spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, And she also concludes with a note about the persistence of segregation that has come up a couple of times. She said she's worked in three different schools in Atlanta. One was over 80% white, one was 95% black, and one was 95% Hispanic. So thank you very much, Sarah. Um, a thing that I was thinking about when I was working on that episode that I don't think we actually said in the episode was, uh, I did not realize that the, the law 
that all children, regardless of ability, were entitled to education came around in 1975. I did say that part in the episode. Um, I had not known that, but it made a, a sort of trend that I have witnessed make a lot of sense, which is that when I was in school, which was not long at all after the passage of that law, the idea of, quote, mainstreaming children with disabilities was still extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the special ed classrooms and schools that I went to were, like, really secluded from the rest of the school. And so the children who were in those special classrooms or who were, quote, mainstreamed for part of the day were just met with all kinds of bullying and harassment constantly. And it was horrible. And I'm sure that still exists in a lot of places today. But today we also see the news articles that go viral about uh, students really coming together to support someone who goes to their school and has a disability, uh, which, in my experience, would not have happened when I was growing up. <laughs> that was just not how it worked. Exactly the same for me. I mean, I remember in elementary school when I was very, very young, like the special education classroom was like in the basement of the school. And I mean, we whispered about it like it was a freaky dungeon. Like we just did not have the knowledge, especially as children. Like it would be like, ooh, where are those kids going? Oh, they're going to the special education room. And it's like, what is that? It was like almost whispered to us by teachers as though it was a scary place. And now I think, thankfully, we've progressed a little bit. It's still ongoing, but... I imagine there is not a freaky dungeon-like special education classroom in a lot of schools now. (laughs) I I hope not. So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Our Facebook is Facebook.com slash History, and our Twitter is MissedInHistory. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash MissedInHistory. We have a Spreadshirt store full of... Uh, t-shirts and phone cases and things like that. It is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you'd like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website. That is howstuffworks.com. Put the word education in the search bar and you will find all kinds of articles about education and how we learn and how we teach. Uh, you can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where we have show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on. We've had lots of questions from folks lately asking how they can find out what our sources are. Uh, Those are all in those show notes. Uh, We also have an archive of every single episode ever. Lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and lots more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com 